Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Thank you all for coming to our session. It's, um, it's a pretty massive thrill to speak to this room and this community, so um, thank you. We'll have questions, uh, a bit of Q&A at the end. Um, first up, I did this right at the end yesterday, and I feel like it's important to put it right up the top, but I just wanted to introduce the team that made this series. So, like, Honor, the whole show is about Honor, and Honor did pretty much everything, as you'll find out today. I was the executive producer. We have um, Alice Moldovan, who is a wonderful uh, radio producer at the ABC in Australia, and uh, Graham Panther, who... You can introduce Graham. Graham is my boyfriend, and he also co-wrote the show with me, and he's back there. Right, he's bro. very good. <laughs> <laughs> If you listen to the series, he's the boyfriend that everyone wants by the end of the yeah, series. Yeah, yeah, I've received a lot of messages um, from people on the internet saying, Graham, oh my God, he's so good. Most of um, them were for me as well, which yeah. is kind of weird. <laughs> um, I say, so at the top of every show, uh, at the top of every episode in this series, we started it in uh, the same way with a, a trigger warning because there are kind of like big feelings and uh, intense topics that we discuss in this show. Uh, but we decided to do something a little different with the way we presented this information to the listener. So I'm going to play you an example now. Hey there. Just a heads up that this show touches on some heavy lifting feelings territory, including what it's like to feel like that you want to die sometimes. It's not graphic, it's not that kind of show, but there is some swearing. This is a memoir show, so it's a show about my experience of trying to figure out some big stuff, but it means that it's only one person's story. One more thing, it's a show about feelings, so it might bring up some feelings weirdly if you finish this episode and feel like huh, hey feel kind of funny you might want to go do something nice for yourself like me right now I'm trying to become a person who runs regularly oh and if you haven't listened from the start go back to episode and start from there The people at the park are looking at me funny. 
so we, we set each uh, trigger warning in a space that made honour happy. And um, we encourage you to find that, that space today. Like, if, if the subject that we're talking about gets a bit intense for you, please feel free to leave or to uh, look after yourself today. Yeah, one thing I will say is the show is intentionally not graphic, so there's not graphic material in the show, but it is um, intimately specific uh, it's a very intimate show, uh, so it does kind of bring up some feelings, and we will be playing quite a bit of tape today um, from the show. So, what is the show? Do you want to yeah, give, us, just gonna give say, us a bit of okay, a rundown? Okay, so of what um, I actually just realized this morning that five years ago, almost to this day, I was like exiting a psychiatric hospital, and. Uh, one thing that I really noticed while I was in there, I was actually in there during Mental Health Week in Australia, and um, during that time there was uh, this program called Mental As that meant that there was mental health programming like on 24-7 it felt like. I was watching a lot of it while I was in hospital, and I really felt like I only heard two stories, one which was... um, I had anxiety and then I saw a therapist and now it's all good. And then this other story that was often told about people in third person. So people were talked about and they were usually like, like their life is falling apart, it's ruining their family's lives, like very heavy, like fuck kind of story. And I was uh, sitting in the hospital and I had... I had been like in and out of using services for about 10 years and I was like, I do not fit into that first type of story. And so I was there really feeling like I'm heading towards this second type of story. And it was very, um, it was a very lonely place to be. So basically what we, what I wanted to do with the show and what we wanted to do with the show was kind of write a story that, that fits down the middle which is like everything's not okay, but everything's not not okay. (laughs) Yeah, and the other thing was we really wanted to show kind of more of a holistic sort of um, look at not just like the struggle of this stuff, but also the tenacity, the curiosity, the creativity, and all the other stuff that goes into... Um, dealing with experiences like this? Because I think, um, like, when we... Often when we report about mental health, we report about, like, mental health as if it is the thing and the only thing that that person is experiencing in their life. And I think one thing Honor brought to work with us was that there's still a whole person there and there's still... Uh, other emotions and humour and, uh, you know, like there's the, the, the totality of a person still living there and mental health is actually just part of that. So that's something we wanted to capture um, in, the se- in the show. And we... Should I play the cheese baron? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you want to set it up or do, do yeah. you want me to it? Uh, So this is a scene that we're, that's in, I think, the third episode, um, trying to describe some of what it's like to be in, in the hospital that I was in. Turns out there aren't many good snack options in hospital, other than the vending machine full of junk food. The main thing on offer is individually wrapped sets of three savoury crackers. In the kitchenette in each ward, there's drawers full of the things, as if maybe the hospital won a lifetime supply of crackers in some late-night dial-in TV game show. 
To go with them are these tiny squares of individually plastic-wrapped cheese. But these little golden squares of joy are in limited supply, which is why there's something of a cheese-based economy in here. Turns out, cheese is to psych hospital what cigarettes are to prison. Whenever the cheese is delivered, which is twice a day as I've discovered, it disappears quickly. You really need to strategically time your whereabouts so that you're at the drop-off point within about half an hour of the delivery. A girl in here told me early on that there are a couple of wards, the geriatric and uh, eating disorders, where they're not that interested in cheese. So you can rate those wards for their supply. I spent the last week hiding these cheese parcels in my room and I've accumulated quite the stockpile. I'm something of a cheese baron in here. Yeah, and that scene in particular is... Some of the scenes kind of you're like, where am I being taken and why? Um, That scene then goes into some narration that talks about how these were the kinds of stories I would tell my friends and my family about what was going on. I was actually not very private about... um, the fact that I'd been in psych hospital, I was in psych hospital. Um, I found it really, really easy to have conversations like this but never actually talk about what was actually going on or kind of like sink into that conversation with people. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the show. We'll we'll give you background, we'll play a lot of tape, we'll try to set up what the show is throughout the the next hour. Um, But let me tell you about how it came about. So, in 2017, the ABC did something that it's never done before and it put a public call out to the Australian population to pitch us ideas for podcasts. We got 1,263 pitches, and and there's not that many people in Australia, um, so that's like quite a (laughs) significant chunk of the the population. Um, It's not like, you know, 1,200 of 350 million or whatever over here. Um, And Honor won. So uh, Honor was one of the, I think, handful of shows that came out of that that process um, that actually got made. Uh, I, I remember the moment that I was reading Honor's original pitch. I was sitting at home, and uh, I'm going to read you the first two lines of the pitch uh, now because it's, in, in, insofar as, like, how to pitch, I don't know if this is how everyone should pitch, but I, I, knew, I knew within, like, 50 words that I wanted to make. I didn't know what the show was, but I knew that I wanted to make this show. So, as I packed my bag for the psychiatric hospital, I was faced with a dilemma. Should I pack my vibrator? It made sense, right? If you're admitting yourself because of suicidal thoughts, you should pack things that bring you joy. And like, right there, I was like, cool, I want to make this show. (laughs) Because it's human, and I think that's the thing. I think it's not like going to psychiatric hospital and like, woe is me. It's like, there are still very human, very real concerns wrapped up into that. That took a while to get to that pitch because it was actually really hard to try and demonstrate the sort of show that I wanted to make. And so I just decided that actually just starting with the scene of the kind of like complexity of the thought process of being in these situations um, was maybe the punchiest way of getting there. So yeah, we had the, like, Honor brought this unique perspective, this really original take uh, as, as kind of fresh voice in the space of reporting on mental health. Um, but she also came with a whole bunch of audio diary tape, which I think uh, for a lot of people in this room who spend lives uh, chasing tape, um, for someone to come along with 10 hours of uh, like audio diary tape from their life is um, pretty incredible. Yeah, so I started recording tape uh, around the time that I went into psych hospital. It, my idea, my concept at the time was that I was recording my own recovery. Uh, but what I realised 
after years of having these random recordings was that I was not recording that story. <laughs> I was recording like all this kind of unexpected stuff and the complexity of it that I didn't really understand at, at the time that I started. So we're going to play a little bit of uh, the tape to give you a feel for the sort of thing that Honor brought along. Uh, this particular scene, um, it, it occurs kind of towards the end of episode one. We spend the entire episode building the context to place this bit of tape in. You're not going to get any of that context right now. So, you know, just we wouldn't just normally drop this uh, on an audience. But I, I feel like it's important to give you a sense of, like, what we had, the source material we had. To give a sense, like, this in, the, in our, like, Google Docs, this tape is called Dark Tape. Um, so, so, like... And this is an actual piece of tape from my actual life um, of a conversation between me and my boyfriend that occurred kind of at the point of maybe being like five months into a sort of suicidal crisis. <laughs> I was think I sound like a little bit of a petulant shit in this piece of tape. So it's kind of interesting to play it. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of what it is. So it's quite an intimate piece of tape. I have to go to work. Have some logistical questions before that happens. <clears throat> Are you afraid of trying to die today? Um, I probably won't do it while I'm at work. Do you want me to drop you off and pick you up? <laughs> if you drop me off, that would be handy. I'll see how I go. Do I need to worry? No. <laughs> well, leave her an honest answer. It's okay if I need to worry. I'm not going to kill myself at work. Yeah, I'm worried about that after, but... I'll just call you. That still punches me in the guts every time I hear that piece of tape. It's also a great example of uh, just how hard it was to just hand over some of this tape. And also mad props to Alice, to, who was the producer on the team, who um, listened through and transcribed all of the tape. Um, you said 10 hours. I listened to all the tape too. <laughs> it I felt like way longer than that. I didn't listen to all the tape. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, so we, we, this is like that was the setup, and we pretty quickly decided that what we wanted to do was make a memoir show based on Honor's experiences. But how do you go about that? We're thrown together, we'd never met before, uh, yeah, but we had to get to know each other. I did some thinking on how this came together. The first thing is that I really didn't feel like I had to do it at all. Um, even though I got chosen, I went through all the pitch process. At the time that I actually was pitching the show, I was like in the middle of the shit. It wasn't something that I was really like, yeah, I'd love to do that right now. But it was, I was kind of going through, the, going through the process 
So I did a lot of research. I did a lot of reference checking on Joel. Because <laughs> at the time, I didn't know anyone that was at the ABC. And it's kind of useful, to, I think, for producers um, to consider what it would be like to, to go to an organization and to meet a producer um, that you don't know at all. So I did a lot of reference checking, and I found out reasonably, I'd say very quickly, that Joel is probably the the best person in Australia to make this show with. Like genuinely everyone I spoke to was like, he's amazing and I love Joel and I wish I was making a show with him. Um, so that was really helpful. Um, our relationship I think became very strong very quickly, partially because you were just straight up very honest with me um, and you were like, <laughs> we had a real talk beer. So we went and got a beer and we were like, this is how I actually feel about stuff and this is what I need from you. And Joel, you were like, you were like, basically, we can do whatever. I just need you to tell me what is happening. Yeah, like as the EP on this show, I, I kind of knew early on that I'd have to really separate, even more so than we usually do, like separate the production team from like the, the sort of the, the bureaucracy and the management side of things. And so I, I saw it as my job to kind of like, we, we talked about a bubble to, to like, give the creative team a bubble in which to go and make this thing and try to shield them from as much of everything else, uh, the business side of things, as we could. Yeah, he did a really good job of bubble wrapping us. Um, and the initial workshops that we'll talk about in a second were really helpful. We did, I think, a couple of days together, um, and that was like really where I kind of laid it all out on the page because I had some really particular things that I wanted to say that I knew wouldn't... Uh, don't usually fly with report like with reporting on these kinds of stories like stories about mental health are kind of notoriously conservative I, I think and uh, so I really wanted to, I had to make sure that uh, Joel and the team were willing to tell the story that I wanted to make because I really I just didn't it wasn't worth it to um, if we weren't going to do that the other thing that was um, I would say like administratively complicated but invaluable was that we brought my boyfriend onto the team which is like kind of a weird thing to do um but what was really helpful about that was a he's a genius uh b he is a he becomes a character in the show and so he actually knows a lot of about my own life uh as well as his own life so it actually helped to it became about the story rather than about myself if that makes sense and he also wor he works in mental yeah. health as well, so he's a like, subject matter expert, which is really useful. Yeah, and he's a writer. He's a very good writer. And the other thing was around the flexibility. There was always a sense that like, there was an ability to pull the pin on the project if that needed to happen, or at least like, like at the start on the, in the Real Talk beer, uh, you were like, if we need to delay the whole production by three months, that is a possible thing that we can do. Yeah, I mean, I think unlike other shows where <laughs> like you, you want to make whatever you can even if something like even if the train goes off the rails and like there, there's a catastrophe around like the actual production you'll still try to scrape together something you know because there's money being spent and there's like people expecting to listen to something but with this show like we thought really hard about duty of care and not just like our duty of care to honor our duty of care to the whole team our duty of care to the listener in the end and uh, I think unusually uh, I was willing to just pull the pin at any point and then 
go and figure out what that meant for my bosses. But, um, you know, it's, it's real people and uh, it's real life. So you, you have to respect that, I think, as a producer. Yeah. So there's a lot of, like, a lot of trust. Um, we had to sort of get to know each other and get to trust each other. And we started doing some story workshops where Anna basically uh, told us what she wanted to talk about in the show, but also broke down the entire story of her life which is something unique when you get to have someone draw their entire timeline out on a whiteboard. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it was as much about, like, learning the story as it was, like, figuring out how we all got on. And pretty early, I think there was, like, a shared sense of humour that, like, came out of the group. And I think one thing that was really... Like, at the start, Joe was very, like hey, look, I know, uh, maybe I'm not supposed to say this, but here's an idea. And that, that caveat completely fell off, uh, like, within the first month, I'd say. <laughs> there was no more caveats. <laughs> yeah, there was, I was playing it very cautiously for a while. But um, eventually, like, some of that, some of that shared humour, like, actually wound up in the show. So, like, Honor would be using metaphors or imagery to explain to us what was going on. And I, I think it was really important for me to capture all of that imagery, like, at that, like, really initial stage. Like, if there was a metaphor that worked for us understanding it then, then we'd try wherever we could to turn that into, some, like, a scene in the show. Um, because I figure if it works for us, it's going to work for the audience. Um, so I want to play you a bit of tape uh, that is an example of that. So early on, uh, Honor used a sort of game show motif to describe a particular... Do you want to describe what it is or...? Yeah, so in episode two is called The Vast Wasteland and it's basically around... So the, the landscape in Australia, I'm not sure if it's the same here, um, is that you can get some services like at the initial end, what they call primary care, and then there's like a vast wasteland of like not being able to access services and then there's hospital. Like, <laughs> that was, that's a very common experience in, in terms of, uh, they call it the missing middle in the, in the mental health services. Um, so we wanted to describe that and how tricky that was to sort of navigate um, as a person kind of moving through it. And yeah, this is the metaphor that Honor gave to us that we uh, turned into a scene. But instead of thinking this system was clearly inadequate, I started to think that I must be a particularly bad problem, a stain on an otherwise helpful system. You know, that's what all the ads said. The teens just asking for help. But I've been asking for help for 10 years, and it is still not enough. Or I'm still not crazy enough. Good evening. And welcome to Are You Crazy Enough? Where the ultimate prize is the help you need. Our first guest tonight, Honor Eastley. Honor, are you ready to play? Uh, yeah. Okay. So, question one. Have you killed anyone? No. <laughs> oh, okay. Have you committed a crime? Uh, no. Not even a petty theft? I mean... There was that time in my early 20s, I think I stole an avocado, but I'm, I'm kind of bad at Any that. drug addictions? No. Like, not even weed or something? I'm, come on. You look like one of those nice girls with a pharmacy in her purse. Am I right, audience? Am I right? Uh, no, nothing like that. 
You're one of these people who didn't even get a detention in high school, aren't you? Uh, yes. Look, nothing against you personally, but you're making this really hard for me, right? I'm just, I'm just in a lot of pain and I'd, I'd really like not to be and, like, sometimes I want to die and I've told a bunch of people this and no one seems to really take me serious. Yeah, yeah, look, sorry, but that's just not going to cut it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank honour for her time. Our next guest I got, is... I, I, I got a new diagnosis last week. Does that help? What is it? Oh, it's, it's this, like... Oh. Oh, Lord, it, oh, that's yeah. bad. Oh, that's really bad. Yeah. Which means... That's great! You've made it across the vast wasteland! Welcome to all the services. Please keep your hands inside the vehicle until you've fully landed. And a reminder, there's no smoking on the tarmac. Oh, my God, are you serious? Oh, my God, thank you. Thank you, thank you. I just, I'd really like to thank my mum and my dad, who've always been there for me, and all the psychologists I've seen, and that really nice lady at Centrelink last week. So, yeah... We were trying wherever we could to sort of like think of where we could build scenes to like make uh, to, to make navigating this topic a little bit more uh, intuitive for, for the listener. There was another um, metaphor. So when Anna told this great story early on of being in psychiatric hospital and um, during mental health week and there being an inflatable elephant in the foyer, which is like the elephant in the room. And um, it, it was, was very just clever. This, yeah, it's very great. clever. And. It was just this wonderful, like, like this terribly wonderful image that, like, we kept kind of referencing. And so then during the writing process, we basically, like, used the image of this inflatable elephant as, like, a metaphor for honours, like, <laughs> hope within hospital or hope that hospital was going to be the solution. And so the elephant, like, slowly deflates over, like, the weeks that she's there and we kind of personify it a bit. But, yeah, we're trying to do a lot, of, capture a lot of that at this stage. And part of it was also about, like, trying to approach this topic in quite a different way. We've had a lot of people say that they laughed a lot more than they expected to, given that it was a show about being suicidal. Um, yeah, so, yeah. So the next step, uh, once we kind of, like all trusted each other and we had a sense of, like, honours life. Um, we had to take the messiness of life, like the messiness of all of our very human kind of moment-to-moment -moment <laughs> existences, and turn that into a compelling narrative because no-one wants to listen to, like, a messy collection of things. Or maybe you do, I don't know. But um, And so this was, like, a really big tension for me. Like, I come from a sort of audio documentary-making background and... Yeah, we, we sort of had to figure out that basically we weren't going to, like, play this out as a chronological retelling of Honor's life and that we were going to have the series actually be crafted to take you on a journey that was unlike <laughs> the actual journey of your life. So we figured out what that season arc looked like and, like, and what each episode was doing and... And then I think you explained it really well, like where you're saying each, each episode gives you the feeling that this might be the solution and then blows that up. Yeah, because that was kind of the experience of moving through um, this over a period of years was like feeling like I have found it and then being like, no, that's, that wasn't it. And then being like a lot of work and then being like, no, I found it, it's over here. So that's kind of 
was part of how we were trying to uh, work through that with the episodes in terms of the idea was that the audience would hopefully feel like the answer changed um, over the over the series, which is exactly what the lived experience was like. And yeah, I kept having these moments for, for quite a long time in the production in this early writing stage where I was like, I kept, I kept thinking, okay, so when do we zoom out and like we talk to an expert and we give the context to this narrative? Because that's what you do in documentary making, right? You like, you hook people in with the personal story and then you like defer to the expertise and give like the broader context that it exists in. And then it was like literally a sort of like, I was up with a small child in the middle of the night and I realized that like this isn't that kind of show. And that was a huge moment for me where I realised, wait, we're making a memoir. Like, we're not making a traditional documentary. And I think once I had that... Like, once that snapped into place in my brain, everything became a lot easier for me. Um, so, yeah, what we did, we, like, identified... Like, mapped out the series arc, then mapped out each episode, and then we fit the audio diary tape into that structure. I think there's a temptation, like, when you have all of this amazing source audio that you want to, like, just use it all and use as much as possible. And, like, we were really deliberately restrained in doing that because, like, story is the most important thing, right? And, and like, communicating these ideas in a really compelling way is the most important thing. And, and as, as great as it is having that tape, that tape is way less effective if it's just chucked in there and it's not, like, used for a purpose to drive the story. Yeah, there was, as an example, there was, like, <laughs> a lot of great tape of... Um, boyfriend Graham being an excellent boyfriend um, that just we had to cut. It was a very sad time. It was like, oh, we lost the Bruce Springsteen card. Oh, we lost this scene. Um, yeah, he still comes off pretty well, but yeah. we had To, to be fair, I don't think Graham could come off any better than he does in the show. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, we... Um, do you want to talk about, like, the difference between episodes one to three and four to six? Because, like, I think that's... In terms of us writing this, that's really interesting. Yeah, so uh, episodes one to three became a lot clearer a lot quicker. So episode one is like is called The Voice. It's about trying to describe this experience of having a very critical uh, voice in your head and um, not being able to escape it. How that episode has actually been used, which is awesome, is, is it's become kind of this explainer. Uh, a lot of people have have written to us and said that they've used it to explain the experience to their friends, family, psychologists even, um, because it com uses completely non-medical language on purpose. It's, it tries to be a very experiential, descriptive um, explanation of that. Anyway, so that's episode one. Episode two is The Vast Wasteland, which is um, the thing I described before. And uh, episode three is about being in hospital. So those key beats were all, like, pretty locked in. We knew sort of where that was going. And then the four, episodes four to six is where it gets kind of a lot messier. And actually what was interesting was that it was actually also where the show started catching up with my actual life. So episode six in, in particular, like, for instance, that tape we heard before, it's in episode one, but chronologically in my life, it's from episode six. So, so what we did, and this, this is kind of like in a way to appease like the, the journalist <laughs> that lives inside of me, um, <laughs> was that episodes one to five, we like very deliberately crafted and like we 
smushed events together that like happened years and years apart and but we kind of like didn't explicitly like say that they happened at the same time but like the implication was that this was like a very kind of like chronolo like one event and a chronology that like existed for a discrete connected period of time yeah it feels like it might be over about 18 months to two years the first five episodes but then uh, and then in episode six we explode that so like episode six we basically it's like that scene in the wizard of oz where you find out the wizard's like the dude and not like the big thing um (laughs) (laughs) very well explained (laughs) i'm very jet lagged at the moment Um, and yeah so in episode six what we did is basically say like exactly that like this is a story that we've just crafted life is a lot messier uh it looks a lot more like this which is like crisis one in 2007 crisis two 2011 Ooh, crisis three it's time for another one 2015 and on but i think that's a really important message in this space as well because it's not like it's not like the sort of like infinite treadmill of like looking for a solution it's it's like life is messy and complicated and ongoing and that's what I hope episode six um, gives us. Um, should we talk about your voice, yep. like the narration? So, so having a memoir show about a person, uh, we're going to really, like, Honor's voice is, like, the centrepiece to this entire show. And so we had to think um, really clearly about how we represented her voice in the mix. Um, there are, I think, five different honor voices so like there's the main narrator there's the audio diary honor so like the archival tape we had there's the tape from the reconstructions that we recorded that we'll talk about in a bit um there's honor's mean voice like her critical internal monologue and there's the regular internal monologue i think that's all of them i'm not sure (laughs) but um what we but what we wanted to do with representing these voices was for the audience to not have to think about which honour was telling you the information at any one time. So we kind of wanted it to be intuitive as a listener which voice was coming from where. And, like, the way we did this is through the sound design. So I might play you a cut that I think there's all of these voices or maybe four of these voices in, and then I'll talk about what we did. Yeah, this is from episode one. I think it's in the first couple of minutes and it's just sort of like the the first initial introduction to this concept of the mean voice or the voice. Sometimes when I'm having a panic attack, when it's fire town in all my gooey human insides, I think I actually must look really serene. It's been happening a lot lately, most mornings actually, for an hour or two you wouldn't know from the outside though because I'll just lie on my back in bed (sighs) I'll have my hand on my heart and I'll breathe I do this sequence of counting and breathing over and over and this sequence is just complicated enough to hold my attention away from the voice. (sighs) Oh my god. Why can't I just sleep? (sighs) Have you ever thought about how you never really had a real job? You know, like your parents do. Are you worried about that? What are you doing? 
Do you think your parents are actually proud of you? Or, like, pretend proud? Do you remember that awful photo someone took of you five years ago? That's probably on the internet somewhere. And if you ever become successful, someone somewhere will find it and put it on the front of TV weekly. Oh, my God, what are you doing? I'm trying to sleep. Oh, I'm sorry, you're trying to sleep. I'll just leave this dossier of potential bad consequences here in your bedside then. Good night. What are you reading? What the voice in my head says. This is my boyfriend and I on one such morning, but this time I'm trying something different. I feel silly. Well, kind of point. <laughs> this isn't you that should feel silly. Like we've told your mean voice to like come to the front of the class and read what's on the notes. <laughs> Okay, so very early on we made the decision to make Honor's evil voice an actual character in the show and that was made in the writing process and um, the, the voice is played by Fiona Pepper who is one of Australia's like brightest young audio producers and uh, is also a trained actor. Um, she was like really wonderful. And then, then what we did was... So like the mean voice has a consistent place in the mix that is consistent for the entire series. So, like, we found the place that it worked, and I think it's off, like, just off to the left, like, in the mid. And, like, that, you, you, the, the mean voice would always appear there, and then the archive tape would always appear in its same consistent spot, and archive tape would also be topped and tailed by some mic handling noise. Thank you to... <laughs> shout out to Caliphate. Um, and, and then reconstructions would have their own place as well. So we tried to, like use the space in the mix to, you know, hopefully after like 15 or 20 minutes of listening to the show, you just kind of like, you're not even thinking about it anymore. You, you, you kind of get a sense that like, if it's here, then it means it's archive tape. And if it's here, it's the mean voice. Yeah. The other thing is that all the audio tape is recorded on a iPhone. It was just the least weird way to do it, I'd say. Oh, yeah, the other thing I should mention is, like, and I'm happy to talk to someone about this in depth later on, but, like, we worked pretty hard at the glitchy effect on the mean voice as well. We kind of, like, uh, Russell Stapleton, who's the wonderful engineer on the series, um, he and I, like, sat down with a few plugins and, like, <laughs> tweaked that voice for longer than I'd probably care to remember. The other thing is that Fiona Pepper, who, I, who played my mean voice, I became friends with after we made the show. I didn't know her beforehand. And uh, I really just, like, it took me a, about a month before I stopped assuming that everything she was saying was a criticism. <laughs> like, I was just like, no, nah, I've got to reprocess those words. She's just saying, how are you doing? It's fine. Okay, so we have all this archive tape. We have scenes that we're building. But then we also have parts of Honor's life that we want to represent that we don't have tape for. And so we figured we had to figure out how to do that. Sometimes we do that through scripting, but we also recorded a whole bunch of reconstructions. This is one such reconstruction of like a time when I in hospital where I was like really drugged up and trying to walk to the bathroom, but like had to like lie down on the floor because it seemed like the least crazy looking option, which unfortunately did make me look. A bit crazy. Um, I think it's important to, to recognise that, like, we, we didn't make up anything. So all of the scenes that we were reconstructing were based on uh, actual written diaries uh, that Honor had made at the time. Um, 
And, but we, we also didn't identify that they were reconstructions in the show. So, like, you get a sense as a listener that, like, oh, there's no way that that could have... <laughs> like, that she could have been recording at that time. But we sort of lent into that ambiguity. I, I think there's, like, great shows that I love, like Love and Radio and uh, Ben Walker's Theory of Everything often, like, blur that line. And I felt kind of empowered by those shows and, like, how much I love them to do that. And shout-out to the... Um no series by the heart that was also a great inspiration for for this series yeah and um i was also into this idea that we we called audio verite like (laughs) verite um so so because the reconstructions were going to be matched up against iphone recordings i thought a lot about how you don't make it this beautifully mixed scene and then this iphone recording and how you kind of try to to make them appear to be of the same world. So I got obsessed with the idea of, like, action in front of the mic. So, like... And and I was listening to a lot of Awful Grace at the time. Like, shout-out to local Chicago podcast. It's, like, freaking incredible if you haven't heard it. Um, But, so, yeah, I was using this kit here. It's called an MS kit. I, I don't know, like, the actual technical specs. But basically what it is is a shotgun mic at the front that has a cardioid mic sitting behind it so it's two mics built into the one casing and they're both recording so you can like you can get the audio off independently from either mic but you can also then process the combination of the two and you get this like really interesting effect so you can have the shotgun working as a shotgun but often if we're recording a scene I'd put like an actor off to the side who is speaking across the second mic and getting a completely different texture to their sound so we were like experimenting with that and, and also, like, when we're out recording reconstructions, these things weren't scripted. We were just, like, we knew what we wanted to get from a scene. We'd, we'd go and actually go to that place. I was all about, like, like, we go to the place, we do the scene, and I'm not, I'm, like, I didn't record any, uh, like, I didn't go and get, you know, 10 minutes of street noise and then mix that, like, very carefully in. We just kind of, like, hit record and got what we got and lived with it or didn't use it, so... Yeah, so just a, some of the scenes... So some of the scenes we recreated with the people who were in them, so myself and my boyfriend, they weren't scripted. We were just like, let's redo that conversation we had. Um, some of them were scripted if we were getting actors in to make, to make sure that it was what happened. And, yeah, we were always, like... Like, we never felt pressured to actually use the scene. So, like, we were quite obsessed with this idea of, like, the listening experience should keep you... like it should keep the listener in an almost trance-like state with honour. So, like, that's why we're not zooming out to experts and that's why we're not, like, kind of doing those things we usually do. We're trying to, like, keep people engaged with honour and her story. And so if a scene that we recorded was going to break that trance, then we just didn't use it and we'd try to do uh, something else. But occasionally scenes, like, just worked in ways that I could never have imagined... I, I want to play you one that I think is, like, the best reconstruction we did, and then maybe you can talk about it. Yeah, this is a scene between me and Graham and the, the mean voice. Back at that photocopier, making those posters, planning that I don't want to die anymore party, I thought I had it all figured out. But now, very much to my own horror, it's happening again. I don't want you to go. You don't want me to go? Yeah. Why not? Um, 
Well, isn't this awkward? A perfectly sunny day, Graham's trying to go to work, people are walking past and you're lying down on the nature strip. I just don't think I should be alone right now. What? Um... I just... I just don't feel like I can have another bad day right now. And I just don't know how many I have left. It sounds really scary. Yeah. What's going on? Um... I've just been thinking a lot about death lately and... mostly abstract but now it's just more specific and I'm just scared So I don't want you to go. <laughs> okay. I'm I think we're all crying at the end of that scene as well. <laughs> I think that was a pretty... Uh... As in the... Uh, actually, at this stage when we recorded that scene, we didn't know each other very well. And um, <laughs> I think you were just a bit confronted and I probably started crying. Yeah, I mean... And it's this thing we, like, that we can go on to talk about. Um, like, like, duty of care was just like an ever-present concern when you're sort of like dealing with this subject matter, but also like, like it's, I don't know, it was, it's it, like scenes like that are very raw. And like, we talked about it, like we're very open about it, but even still as like the person running the show, it's like... I need you to tell me like a hundred times that like you want to do this and it's okay, you know. Um, so we're, yeah, we're thinking a lot about duty of care and we're thinking a lot about our duty of care to the listener as well. Um, you know, sort of 25, 30, 40 minute episodes dealing with this subject matter is quite intense. And so again, we thought about how we could use the sound design to create a space within the show for the listener to process what they'd just gone through. So, like, we didn't want to end an episode and be like, please go on, rate and review us on iTunes. And, like, you know, we, we, we wanted... Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. <laughs> we wanted to create a space uh, within the show that gave the listener time to do that. Yeah, so uh, we had... Or in, very inspired by Cal Fate um, that came out the same year. They had these great instrumental endings that go for about two or three minutes. 
we were really impressed. Like, we, we basically, like, yeah, we, we all came to work one day and we're like, have you heard, like, I was just on the train and then, like, the voices stopped and the music kept going. And what I loved about what that show did was it's a really intense um, topic and then you just didn't notice that people stopped talking and it was just instrumental until, like, it skipped to the next, like, hi, welcome to blah, 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 you're listening to... Love, you know, something else. And um, that kind of trance thing really worked and gave space. We, in the production team, we called this the crying space um, because that's how, when, that's how we thought people would use it and that is how people did use it. So we want to play you uh, a bit of tape from, like, this is, this is how episode one ends. Um, the, the trigger warning at the top of this show was Honour in the Dog Park, and so that's kind of echoed in this piece at the end. Um, this goes for about four minutes, so please get comfortable, but it's Third Coast, we're here to listen, right? Um, and then after this, we're going to do, do questions. Yeah, so. we should have about 15 minutes for questions. So, um, But enjoy this piece of tape called Dog Park Ending. <laughs> More than once, this voice has driven me close to dying... But on good days, I can hold her at arm's length. I can hold her just there for as long as I need to and just breathe.
I should mention that that song and a lot of the uh, music of, uh, that was featured in the show was all written by Honor, and the rest of the music and sound beds were all written by our engineer, Russell Stapleton, who did the mix from the ground up. But that's kind of it from us. So we'd Can like I say to... one last thing oh, about yeah. the dog check? That is like probably my fav- one of my favourite pieces of tape from the show. I think because, uh, like, the the... There's a lot going on, and then it kind of there's this moment where I say like, I feel like you're taking me for a walk, and Graham says if it works, and it's just like. I I feel like it's an accurate representation of a moment of what it's like to be in these experiences of like, it's fucked. You're in that existential hole for three hours, and then you go to the park and you're making jokes. You're like, singing, making up songs about your dog. Um, and that that kind of the the wholeness of that picture um, is is part of what we wanted to capture because a lot of I mean this kind of speaks to one of the things that's in the show a lot of what I my experience was that I got dismissed because I didn't look like fucked up enough in a way um, and so kind of wanted to capture that like a lot of people have these experiences it's actually really common and people are very business as usual, like on the, on the top. Um, yeah. I just hadn't thought about that until I listened to it. Cool. Well, thank you for coming along. And please ask us some questions. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, thanks for being vulnerable and sharing your story. Um, It's such an intensely personal story that you revealed um, through these episodes. I'm just wondering how you prepared yourself emotionally for the haters out there um, or skeptics and people who are just jerks. Um, And then, you know, the inevitable messages that they leave and comments, all of that. Uh, I don't know about y'all, but like as in what you personally received, I received like no hate for this show. Um, it was something that I was concerned about from the beginning because it was something that some, someone at, in, in like the third round of pitching was a video pitch and someone just offhand um, that was on the panel offhand said something about like how we might release this show and we might have other publications in Australia picking it apart basically and like that we need to be prepared for that. That was one of the big things, you know, one of our real talk beers, that I was like, Joel, is that actually going to happen? Um, and you were like, no. <laughs> but also, um, so like, it's all the stuff we talked about, like within our team. Like we, we had this really unique team, I think, and we, we took time to know and trust each other and, and also to think about what we were doing with the show and, and I guess look after each other. But then like outside of that bubble, to, to use that metaphor again, uh, like... A place like the ABC has like really impressive structures built into it. So uh, we we had a catch up. Well, Honor had two catch ups, I think, with um, a person who's called our trauma lead. And typically, uh, their role is to work with reporters who have been covering war zones or have been covering kind of other traumatic, horrific events. And um, this is different. And it was a unique situation, but their expertise still uh, played in. Uh, When the show came out, we were very careful about social media as well. Like, so we kind of, the editorial team were very closely monitoring what was going on. But yeah, um, the messages that came in were were really beautiful. Yeah, I'd say just uh, two things that I would also add to that is that... um, um, I had some experience of like talking about vulnerable stuff uh, online before and like watching people talk about me in third person about my vulnerable stuff. So I had a little bit of an understanding what that might feel like, so I was kind of prepared for that. Um, one thing I would say, people do still say stuff, sometimes to my face, that they may not real. I think particularly because, like, we're a bit tired today, but often, like, I'm, like, cracking a lot of jokes. The show's pretty funny. Um, uh, People think I'm, like, very, like, fine about everything. But, you know, it's, like, also probably 
the most personal stuff about my stuff. And there, there is definitely stuff that I feel vulnerable about. There's a lot of stuff that didn't make it into the show. Um, and I'd say, actually, we kind of had, if there was a problem, it would be the opposite problem. So, like, I know that when we dropped the episode zero, there was someone that I didn't know personally, but, like, being on the internet, we had exchanged some messages and... Um, they were in a really bad place and they were very explicitly saying that they were suicidal. They were saying the show was coming out across the next two weeks. They were saying that they um, didn't think that they would be alive to listen to the show and they were apologising for that to me. So um, I would say, like, in terms of the amount of, of emotional stuff that people were communicating me. So kind of like the opposite problem of people really connecting with the show. And that, that can be quite difficult to deal with. <laughs> After the show came out, I've taken quite a long hiatus from the internet. And my email inbox is, is like got a lot of stuff in it. Um, so, and, and that's, I mean, that's kind of a good problem to have. People, it means people are really, really connected with the show. Um, and and that it, it speaks to them in a way that, like, a lot of people have, have said, you know, I, I've never listened to anything that's explained my experience um, like this. So. This is, like, a really incredible and special project. And, uh, like, as a dog owner, thank you for that last piece of tape. I feel like... Um, there's so few places that provide space and resources for like a project like this. And I, I'm like really curious to hear more about how you created that bubble and how you like created that within a, a larger system. If like even like did you just take that dog tape to an executive and like just listen to this, we have to let it work. Like what were the like conversations actually like and how did you maintain that sort of like support for something that is that that is just like this special? <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, it's a really good question. I also love dogs. I take every opportunity I can to do stories about dogs. Um, so, yeah, so this, this show was made in a part of the ABC called Audio Studios, which is uh, it's a kind of small, new part of the ABC. Uh, it's, it's kind of where new shows can get made and, like, its purpose is, I guess, to be a bit startup-y, you know? Like, people come in, people go out... You get dropped in, you get a budget, you make a show, you go back to where you work. Um, so, yeah, I was there all of last year. I'm a science journalist. Like, I run ABC Science's uh, audio team. Um, and, yeah, so, like, I think the fact that it was being made within a place that was designed to be an experimental place helped. Uh, I also had great support from... So, the manager of Audio Studios, Kelly Reardon, uh, like, we had... She, she really trusted me and she kind of brought me in to make a show like this. They hadn't done anything like this before and I had a bit of a licence to, like, lean into the kind of experimental sound arty stuff that I, I like to do. Um, all of that being said, like, I cashed a lot of checks as well. <laughs> like, like, there are a lot of meetings where, uh, you know, the conversation was just like, you've you got to trust... Like, you've got to trust me, you've got to trust the team... We've kind of we're working really hard at this. We want to we want to make something different, and I think, but like yeah, it was that aside. It was um, like I felt super supported, and um, yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a really great initiative, and I hope 
one day we can make more stuff like this. Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you for your question and comment. And um, the other thing I'd say is that there were bits that, like, we had to negotiate around how we'd tell them, obviously, um, because it's kind of like we had a responsibility in, in telling this story. One that I would point out as an interesting example, if anyone's thinking about making shows like this, uh, was there's a, there's a piece in there that's quite long and in our notes is called the drugs monologue, which kind of like runs through my potted history of taking psychiatric drugs and trying a bunch of different ones over about 10 years and finding that none of them helped me and there was a lot of bad side effects. And um, that is a story that you don't really hear um, for obvious reasons because people are worried about psych drugs, people not going on them, but for, for people stopping taking them and, and changing meds and all that kind of thing. Um, but for me, it was really important because I'd taken drugs for so long and found none of them to be effective and never heard people talk about that as a common experience for a lot of people. Um, obviously, it's not the only experience. Some people find them really helpful. Um, but yeah, so there was, there was like, that was probably the most run over um, piece of the show. I think that's also like, it opens like an opportunity to talk about something I probably should have mentioned during the actual presentation. But even though we, we even though I sort of got over like the documentary thing of having to put their expert voice in the show, we still fact-checked everything. Like, we still had a team of experts who, like, so with the, the psych drug monologue, we had two, psychi two psychiatrists who are, like, you know, leading psychiatrists in Australia who ran over the monologue in an early draft and gave us advice, and we folded that advice in. And then, so in the writing stage, there was a lot of, and like, they also, eyes on the script. And they also listened to the whole show. Yeah, and then at the end, feedback. we got them to listen to the audio as well. So, like, even though... <laughs> we, we didn't do the experts in the documentary thing. There were experts, like, ghosting around the outside. Um, thank you both for being here, or all three of you for coming all this way. And, Honor, I've been in that same position in the hospital, so thank you for making that okay to say and talk about. And I've got two questions. Uh, first of all, I didn't hear, or maybe you didn't say, if you were working in broadcast journalism or just doing audio prior to this. And then second, um, knowing my experience and how I would react in, in the black, in the dark, and um, in the ship. Uh, if a recorder was present when, when I was there, I think I would either say things or not say things, knowing that that recorder was there. Did that ever enter into this for you? <laughs> Sorry, that sounds funny to laugh to that, but you just made me think that, um, yeah, it takes some getting used to, um, like recording yourself. <laughs> one, one joke that, that Graham and I had early on was that whenever we turn on the tape, we'd be nicer to each other, <laughs> which is why that, which is partly why that dark tape that we played earlier, like, I don't think I come across very well. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, so I made a couple of shows before this. Uh, one called Being Honest with My Ex, um, which was with my ex-fiance. That was just like a talk show. It was called, like, regularly the most awkward podcast of all time. Um, 
and like we weren't yeah, it was it was weird. Mostly we had a lot of arguments and I cried quite a bit. That's kind of where I got my start in crying in public. Um, <laughs> and it's actually like was really beneficial in a, in a way. Um, and definitely I don't think this show would have happened without that show. Although I don't usually tell people to listen to it because it's like a bit too true to life. Um, and I did another show called Starving Artists, which was an interview show about, like, honest conversations about art and money. Um, but I hadn't done a show like this that were... I, I had done a lot of writing as well, but I hadn't done a docu... Like, a memoir show like this. I have a background in sound engineering, though, and, um, and so that was really helpful. And uh, also I have a collection of random shit I've done... I've done weird stuff like that for a while. Like I have two years where I collected all of my tears um, for a project which is still just sitting in a box um, <laughs> in my garage. And uh, it felt like the most kind of useful thing to do at the time. But definitely self-conscious, uh, I'd say, and there's other people who, who will have similar experience. I'm thinking of Megan Tan, who was here yesterday, who made the Millennial podcast. Like, she really recorded, like, everything. Um, the more you record, the more you get used to it, particularly if people trust you. I would say don't record people if they don't trust what you might do with it. Um, that's kind of, like, a key thing. And so, like, Graham was in the show and he had a lot of creative control as well. But I did very, very specifically sit down with him before we made the show and I said... Like, are you okay to be in it? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, no, seriously, you should probably think about that for a longer time. Um, yeah. Hi. Thank you, Joel and Honor. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, what lessons you've, you're taking with you from making a memoir show to back to the world of audio documentary. That's a really good question, because, like, <laughs> like, not a lot directly translates. Um, I think this, like, I had more time and more resource to make this show than I usually do with the stuff I make. Um, I think the thing that, like, <laughs> the thing that I've taken away isn't so much a sound design thing, but is a, like, working with people thing. And I feel like, like, I, I, the team that we built was just, like, a really great working unit. And I've taken like, lessons from how, like, what we did right there back to the team I run in science. Um, and, yeah, like, about how to, like, as, as, as that sort of EP interface between, like, producers and reporters and middle management, like, how, like how you navigate the managing up and, and managing down. And, um, you know, I think it's, like, I think... At that level, like, your job is to give people... Like, to create... To carve out space for people to do their best work in and not just to, like, kind of churn through and <laughs> to deadline and then churn through to the next deadline. So I think it's more, like, boring procedural stuff, like the way we work and the way the process works than, um, yeah, anything else, yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't really sum it up. I learned so many things. Uh, I hadn't really had access to this kind of way of making um, audio in, this, in, in the same way. So 
being able to work with Joel and Alice and Graham, um, but Joel in particular is, is a very, very good producer. And um, But one thing I would say is that, uh, like, you, in collaboration, you can really get some magic shit. Um, so a lot of the funnest bits that came out of the show came through conversation. So in a, like in a room, and we really had the luxury of that. I think that that, that really made the show a lot better. So I would say, <laughs> like, <laughs> a, a colleague of mine once said that his whole career has been finding awesome people and then finding ways to hang out with them. Like, this show, there, there's so many magical things that came together to make this show what it was, and I would say that the people who made it, like the team, um, is probably number one in terms of magic, um, all the stuff that happens in between. Well, my question is just really practical. Um, how long did this take to produce, and what did it cost? Joel, I'll so hand I, that one over <coughs> to you. So I'm not going to tell you what it cost, because uh, that's commercial incompetence, and um, yeah, I'd get in a lot of trouble. Um, it, uh, it was done cheap, you know. We're a public broadcaster. It wasn't done for US budgets. Um, we kicked off the production around May, and the first episode went out in October. Not all of the team were working on the show for that entire duration. Um, I basically got handed a lump of money and got told to go and make the show <laughs> that I wanted to make. Again, props to Audio Studios for giving us, like, the executive producer's control over a budget and being able to, like, craft a production schedule that we wanted to do. Like, they... The shows that they have been making are made on fortnightly cycles, typically, and run for, uh, I think, like, sort of 14, 15 episode seasons with a sort of three-month, four-month break in the middle. Uh, I did something completely different to that. I don't think you can make... Like, you can't make an episode of a show like this in two weeks and then make the next one two weeks later. So... We did um, a whole bunch of writing before we even touched any tape, before we even opened a, like a, a mix. Uh, and then we did a whole bunch of recording and getting all of our audio assets together in the middle. And then we did a whole bunch more writing. And so like once we started to... like, so I was like, Alice and I were assembling the mixes at our desks and then we were working with the script and seeing what worked and what didn't work, going back, re-recording stuff, re-scripting stuff. So that, like, that third chunk is where like, it all kind of came together. And then, yeah, shout out again to Russell Stapleton, who is like one of the best engineers. Like, he, um, he and a colleague of mine, Jesse Cox, uh, has, have won awards here before. Um, Russell is a, uh, yeah, he's a wonderful engineer. We gave him like five days per episode to um, mix the show. So it was all like like probably a month a month in the studio. And that was like Russell and I sitting there for days and days and days. Like, and we, and we you know, we, we worked really hard at the sound design, like harder than I've ever worked before. Like we'd sort of like try stuff and try it and try it and try it and try it and then realise that, like, okay, it's not going to work, and then try something else and do it again and again and again and again and again. And, like, in that archive, there's, you know, The Voice, version 17, when <laughs> we're trying to get that sound right. So, yeah. Cool. We should wrap it up. Thanks so much, for everyone, for Thank you. being here.
Um, before we move on to questions, I just want to say, like, it's very, very crazy to be here doing this. <laughs> like, from, like... I, the, from the, like, should I be packing my vibrator um, to this moment is quite, is quite something. It's, like, really amazing. And I think that podcasting has this real amazing ability to make things like this happen because of the accessibility and the intimacy. Um, so, yeah. Hi, good morning. I'm Verilyn. Um, I love that you leaned into memoir. Um, I love the idea of a memoir podcast. I'm wondering, like, what um, what made you start documenting? Was it like strictly as like a coping? Like, did you did you envision it as eventually becoming a podcast? Um, so, in terms of why I started recording it, uh, I was just in a lot of pain, and I thought that that was useful to feel like I was doing something maybe useful at the time. Um, but also, I went to art school, so I've done all kinds of weird shit. I went to art school with a lady who saved all her toenails for 10 years. So, you know. Um, anyway, uh, but what was interesting was that to me, I was like, I won't tell anyone about all this stuff I'm saving because that seems weird. But when I started working with Joel, Joel was like, and you have that? Yes! And you've got that? Oh, my God, it's so good. I can't believe you saved that thing. You saved all your medical notes and you got that. But also, yeah. like, I don't think you considered like I when when we started talking about your archive of tape like I just thought of you immediately as a documentary maker like it felt like that there was a kinship there where it's like oh yeah I collect a lot of tape as well like you know not like that kind of tape but like <laughs> I think it's something that like a lot of people in the room like you know you have like the little just for like a different show I work on I found some like tape that I'd recorded five years ago and when I was living in Brooklyn and it suddenly like found life in this show and I like I just saw it like that but that's not he didn't how think you I was weird. Yeah. Is what. <laughs> cool. Does that answer your question? Cool. Hi, I'm Bianca. Um, I'm really excited to listen to the show, if also a little nervous. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about is you pitched the show, you were the executive producer. It's a story about your life, but how did you guys make decisions? And were there things that, like, someone overrode? Um, what were some difficult decisions that you had to make? Um, and honored, did you end up making some executive decisions to not include stuff? There's a lot of stuff that's not included. Like, there's so much stuff that's not in the show. Um, I think that's why, for me, I, it took me a really long time to properly be like, yes, I am going to do this. Um, because I was in a very cautious frame of mind um, the original pitch for the show wasn't centred on my own life. It was centred around the ideas that are in the show that I wanted to, to like, make something great to talk about because I just couldn't see anything else like it. And then I met uh, with a producer at uh, ABC, Ian Walker, who was like, yeah, this is going to really, really sing if it hangs off someone's story. And I was like, okay, me. Um, so, so... Um, that was actually a really useful place to come from, though, because I didn't, I didn't, like, I didn't care about making it about me. I cared about making, like, a great story. So there was a few things that were definitely, like, obviously we had to go over and be responsible. And I actually found the help from ABC in terms of the editorial policies and the production help actually very, very useful because it helped me to know that what we were putting out there was was responsible and was um, ethical 
Um, and that I had like I had an organization that was going to back me in on that. Whereas if I was releasing it on my own, I'd be like, shit. <laughs> uh, also, I think in the, the real talk beer, one thing that was really important for me was that you had control over like what went in the show. So like it was Honor's decision, and we talked about like there were levels of knowing. So there's there's always going to be stuff that only she would know, or that only she and Graham would know. Like my pin number. Uh, <laughs> And then there's stuff that, like, the team could know that doesn't go in the show, and then there's the stuff in the show. So we, we had, like, these bins of information, and that was all driven by honour, yeah. I actually found some tape after we released the show, and I was like, shit, that was some good tape. No. <laughs> don't, don't tell me that. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ajua. I came into audio from a writing background and have been told many a time to not think of writing something and then moving it into audio. So I would love to know how you made that decision and, and what it looked like while you were doing it. As in not writing something first and then moving it into audio, as in thinking about it as an audio piece first, yeah. Um, I think once it was going to be a memoir, uh, like, you know, sort of when, when you're making a documentary, it's all about, like, your source material, right? And so, like... We had, the, we had the audio diary tape, but apart from that, it was just, like, really honours life. Um, and so we had to get that. I don't think there was any other way we could have made it without yeah, one, doing that. Yeah, so a lot of it is actually, like, a lot of the narration is kind of, like, sort of straight as you might write it. But what we were conscious of was kind of breaking things up. So we were like, that's too much for narration. We need to cut in some other kind of audio scene in there. So we were very conscious of that. Otherwise, you'd be like, ah, she just keeps talking. Um, so we're very conscious of, of, of putting in scenes because uh, there was just a lot of – there's a lot of narration in the show, but we wanted to keep it, um, like, very orally stim- stimulating – so a lot of the, the brainstorming was about was like, what's a funny kind of idea for how you could represent that um, with sound? And I think we're just lucky that you, you kind of write how you speak in a way. Like it wasn't like we had to train you to sort of write for voice. It was like that kind of came built into how you just yeah. write, which is lucky, I guess. There was, there was one moment, sorry, this is just go back to you. You just made me think there was one moment where we had episode six, we had to record it the next day and you were like, all the first 11 pages of this draft you've written, which is 13 pages long, cut all of it. <laughs> that, was on the bit where you're like, that is too much narration. Get it out of there. Um, yeah. Thank you guys so much for doing this session. Um, I have two questions. One is more of like a nuts and bolts thing, which is with production schedule, like what was your production schedule? How long did it take for you guys to make kind of each episode? And then the other side of it is like with a production schedule, I think a lot of people don't realize how much your life is being extracted when you make a memoir, maybe both for you, Honor, definitely, and then Joel, Um, but it consumes you. And I wonder what you guys did to sustain yourself while you were making the show in order to make the show. Should we do the production? I'll do the boring bit and you can do the interesting bit. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I think we... It was, like, May through October that we made the show. 
Um, not everyone was on board for that whole period of time. Uh, I can show you the spreadsheet later on, Megan, if you like. Um, we, we basically did a chunk of writing. I think one thing that people underestimate in making any documentary, but like, let alone something like as ambitious as we're trying to be with this, is that they like they don't pay enough attention to all the work you do beforehand. And so like pre-production and like those early stages of planning and writing was was a massive chunk of the whole production. Then we went and did some recording. So I think we had three weeks of recording, maybe less than that. Yeah, and we, we sort of like got our audio. Yeah, maybe it was just one week in Melbourne, but we, we basically collected all our audio assets together. And then we started building... Then we had a period where we were building the actual mixes, uh, and that was mostly Alice and I working on laptops. And while we were doing that, there was a process of going back and rewriting. So while we were putting the shows together, we were identifying what wasn't working, going back to Honor, she was rescripting and revoicing. And then for the mix, Russell had a week. So five days per episode to mix it in the studio. So we kind of gave him a lot of time to get it right. There's a lot of drafts, like so many drafts. <laughs> oh, my God. And um, because we were building everything from the ground up, because we're creating everything for, from scratch, um, yeah, we sort of took a bit of time there. Yeah, one thing that you did, Joel, that was really clever was that we had like writing and then recording all the reconstructions and then more time for writing. So I think we had two or three weeks for writing a week of when Joel came down to Melbourne, we recorded and then we went back and that was really useful because we didn't know what would go in until we tried to record a bunch of it. Um, and yeah, in terms of the sustaining thing was really helpful is that this is the first time I've had, I've worked with a team of people. So one thing that you did Joel that was really helpful was I was actually very removed from the initial mixing process which I think was a really smart idea um, <laughs> and you actually delayed giving me the first mixes by I think a week maybe um, to make sure that they were actually quite good when you gave them to me because at that point I had just vomited all of my life into a computer and some microphones and I had no idea if it was going to be any good. Um, so <laughs> that was quite nerve-wracking. Uh, but I remember when you gave me the initial mixes, I was like, oh, my God, it's going to be great. It's going to be really great. Um, <laughs> um, so I think actually being part in that sense, actually working remotely worked quite well because it meant that, like, I was too involved to be in the, in the mix Joel got the nickname Pod Dad um, throughout the making of the show and he really did a really good job of protecting this, like, creative team from, like, all of the administrative work of the wider organisation. My which, pod children. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which meant that we could just be like, oh, we're just so creative, this is really fun, whereas Joel's like, there's all this other stuff going on that they don't know about, um, which, which was so, so helpful as an EP because I was just like, everything must be fine. Um, so, yeah, he did a really, really, really good job with that. Hello. Uh, this was great. And now a question. Uh, so you said in the writing process that you had, like, scene, 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 and then kind of smushed them together. I like to write like that. Yay. But the thing I run into is, like, when there are all these, like, beautiful self-contained scenes, like, 
transitioning between them feels super unnatural and sometimes you can like art cut between them but sometimes like the audience needs exposition and that exposition always sounds icky compared to like the pre-packaged cheese so how did you write the middle bits like again i think um like that early stage like the whiteboard stage like we did we did so much work like working on like what the story was going to be before we actually went and started putting it together. So like we spent ages figuring out just what the series arc would do. And then we spent even longer on each episode. So like we were moving stuff around. We were changing like the, like, I guess what the episodes did. Like we, we tried a lot of different things and it's that thing I was just saying in the answer before, like, like you can't underestimate the amount of time, like the amount of work you need to put in early on to get, to get the story right, I think. That's very non-specific, sorry. Yeah, and the other thing I'd say is that we tried to make it so that each section had a real purpose. There was a lot of stuff that got cut. We had some arguments. I had written some really great prose that just never made it in there. Um, no, seriously, like whole big chunks. And I was like, no. And it was like, no, but this, if this goes straight from here to this bit, it's going to sing. And I was like, but I wrote some great stuff in there. Um, so like really being quite cutting about what is actually useful um, really, really helped. And a, a lot of the time what we did was kind of like that point example point type of thing of like, so the cheese baron thing was actually a way, that was actually kind of a transition to going into talking about how this is the kind of stuff I would talk about with my friends and family. I was very open about the fact that I was in a hospital, but like it never kind of got it never got never sunk in to the stuff that was going on um so all of all of the scenes really had a purpose of where they were kind of going and what they were trying to explain and I think that was what was helpful about the series in general was particularly Graham and I we came to the show we knew some real points we wanted to make and some real like things we wanted to hit so it wasn't like a retelling of my life because I think I'm awesome, um, but I do. Uh, but it was it was very very purposeful of like it only gets in if it serves the purpose of the story. I don't know if that answers your question. So thank you. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.